0: You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Thanks for joining us for this BJSM podcast, which today comes from the austere surroundings of the Australian High Commission in London. Uh, I'm Harriet Vickers, Assistant Multimedia Producer for the BMJ, and with me I've got Scott Gardner, who's a high performance sports medic from Australia, who's uh, currently working in the UK, most recently with UK cycling. I've also got John Orchard, who's an Australian sports physician. He works with the Sydney Roosters and also Cricket New South Wales and is an Associate Professor at the University of Sydney and finally Peter Bruckner, who's again an Australian sports physician currently living and working in the UK most recently for Liverpool FC. So Scott I'm going to start with you all three of you have been talking about how Australia became such a leader in in sports medicine today um, but I just want you to justify that before we kick off I mean, how can you justify Australia being a a leader in sports medicine?
1: I suppose there's a a number of ways you you can define it, as in, you know, what does being a leader mean? One of the ways you could do that is through just looking at the publication record. I think within the sporting systems, um, and I'm probably going to talk from a perspective of the Australian Institute of Sport or the English Institute of Sport, UK Sport and British Olympic Association combined. In the last 12 months, uh, the Australian Institute of Sport, as on a PubMed search, would put out 45 publications, which is pretty good considering the whole British sporting systems put out 46 combined. I think in its history, so. <laughs> Um, the other way that I'd probably define it is about having um, bums on seats or, or people on the ground to, to help coaches and, and athletes create gold medals and I think that's probably the area where it's a little bit more up for debate at the moment.
0: So tell me a bit about the Australian Institute for Sport. How did that come into being?
1: After the 1976 Olympics in Montreal, I suppose the Australian government and the Australian psyche took a fair old blow. and it needed to do something to develop. We finished 32nd on the medal table and at that time it was they had to put something into place. Uh, that was the Australian Institute of Sport which put medics, scientists and coaches in touch with athletes and the Institute of Sport became a pivotal and central part of, of the Australian sporting system but that also one of the most recognizable brands around the the sporting world and they said it's culminating the amount of research output that they put out of there now but it also put these specialists, um, took them out of hospitals and out of universities and, and put them in touch with coaches and athletes to, to be innovative and to develop sporting expertise.
0: And you were saying some great things about the way they do their training um, over there. Could you tell me a, a bit more about this, why you think they're doing so well?
1: Suppose I can speak from a little bit of experience. I started my training as, as a after a couple of years in the system as a, as a PhD student working within the physiology department at the Australian Institute of Sport. Um, that was a real industry-based PhD scheme where I was put hands-on with a coach in the daily training environment to come up with innovative solutions, science-based structure to to the training plan, and and so I was I was deeply immersed within. The structure of, of Australian sport working with coaches and athletes on a daily basis and within that I somehow had to to develop new novel innovative way to get a PhD based upon a very demanding environment which is not traditionally a, an academic environment.
0: So they really threw you in at the deep end then?
1: Absolutely you're thrown in the deep end with bearded cyclists, like I used in the example earlier, um, through to some extremely talented people who, you know, Shane Kelly is, I suppose, a bit of an Australian icon. I got to work with my icon at the time. It's like, I'm not going to mess that up if I'm getting the opportunity to do that. And and from that developed a whole new skill set and that you add to your scientific training and your scientific expertise. That's a unique opportunity and a new, unique way of training.
0: Great. And are they quite accepting of, of new science-based ideas? I mean, are they quite open to taking these kind of things on board?
1: I think it's individual. There has been a culture of that through the 90s in, into the early, what do you call, noughties. Um, we've really seen over the history of the, the Australian Olympic sporting history, you get two or three people together in, in really coming up with new innovative ways to to really help athletes and have athlete buy-in and to really create a belief that this is what we're doing and we're going to the olympics and we're going to win gold medals and and to do that we use science heavily in in that process to really drive the performance process
0: that's good to hear and um john you were similarly enthusiastic about how well australia were doing in sports medicine Um, but coming from a slightly different perspective you were talking about the the culture of football um, in the English Premier League versus in Australia. So you were quite critical of, of the way the English Premier League treats sports physicians and it seemed to me that you thought they didn't really value their opinion as much as they do in Australia. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a fair summary. Working in a professional football environment To do it well, you actually need to antagonise people at certain times, that the natural instinct of an athlete and of a a coach or manager is sometimes contrary to long-term injury outcomes and your role as a doctor or a physiotherapist is to potentially say things that uh, people don't want to hear to get the best outcomes and unfortunately in the English Premier League, the power balance is far too much in favour of the player and manager and not nearly enough towards the doctor and physiotherapist in making medical decisions there's still a power imbalance in the professional football codes and professional sports in Australia without a doubt but it's 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 much more balanced and there's much more opportunity i think for doctors and physiotherapists to be able to contradict um, coaching staffing and, and uh, advise players without a fear of getting the sack. Um, and that's um, for a number of reasons. It's part of the Australian personality as we've established to antagonise people and uh, it's not seen as being a uh, something that you can't do if you're uh, ranked underneath someone to question them. It's also the fact that the EPL is is an absolute giant that dwarfs other sports and other competitions and it's it's seen as being the only game in town to an extent even though England's the home to many sports. There seems to be nowhere else to go from the EPL whereas Australia is full of a lot more sports that are uh, much smaller but uh, the idea that you could shift from working in Australian football to uh, soccer to rugby league or rugby union um, there are more opportunities in smaller teams so that you don't have a fear that if you if you stop working with a particular club that that would be the, the end of, you, of life as you know it. So unfortunately in the EPL there's a bit of a culture that the way to survive as a doctor or physiotherapist is to not rock the boat, which sometimes should be rocked. And how we can move the EPL forwards is a challenge if that culture... Sh- shift uh, does occur in the EPL, I think it'll be a a healthier environment for uh, players and and managers in the long run, even though they might not appreciate it at the time.
0: So do you think doctors here are kind of afraid of pushing the point in some ways in in terms of of players' health and their rehab and how quickly they should be getting back on the pitch and these kind of things?
2: There are a number of... uh, very well qualified objectively uh, sports physicians who have recently worked in the EPL and are no longer working there and, and perhaps a, a common denominator is that um, they um, were doing their job too well and that t- in terms of trying to get better injury outcomes for their team in the longer term they may have done things in the short term that weren't appreciated and, and as a result the, the manager wasn't uh, happy to uh, butt heads with them.
0: Can you give us any examples?
2: I certainly couldn't give sp- specific uh, case histories of individuals, but y- your classic one would be if a doctor or physiotherapist realise that a player was starting to develop groin pain and uh, knew that if you're starting to drop your uh, adductor strength uh, on a dynamometer that you're at risk of uh, worsening a groin injury and it could be potentially become chronic. And doctor recommended to the uh to the manager and to the player look this is time for you to have a match or two off to wait until your groin strength has returned to normal before you before you uh get back on the pitch and manager might think look this is now that the doctor or the physiotherapist trying to select the side for me and uh I've spoken to the player, the player says he's right to go and I'm going to pick him and uh, if this doctor and physiotherapist don't stop getting in my face and telling me who I can and can't pick in my team, I'm going to have to find find new staff members who will go along with what I tell them to. (laughs) That's your classic scenario and um, obviously you wouldn't want to name an individual but I'm sure that that's, uh, that's happened to many players with specific injuries.
0: You had a graph today um, looking at the relationship between uh, training loads and, and team fitness and performance injury. Tell me a bit about that.
2: Yeah, it'd be best of course to direct uh, people to the magnificent resources you've put on the PJSM website. I wrote uh, who is to blame for all the football injuries. The summary is that the point at which uh, injuries kick in in relation to training load it's probably different to the point at which fitness benefits continue to improve and, and therefore it might be in the interest of the medical staff to pull players out of training earlier than it would be in the interests of the, the manager in terms of getting a, a fitter team. So the, the, the blog does just explain that dynamic and perhaps explains why there may always be a little bit of a clash between a manager or coach and the medical staff and understanding why that clash exists may be uh, something that can be explained to coaching staff and to managers uh, to, to let them know that it's healthy to have a little bit of conflict and a little bit of uh, debate amongst the the support staff members in order to get the best outcomes for the team, both from an injury prevention point of view and from a team performance point of view.
0: Great. And we'll put a link to that on the um, the podcast page so listeners can go and have a look in more detail. And tell me a bit about salary caps and how that benefits um, sports physicians in Australia because that sounds like a great idea that we should adopt over here.
2: Yeah, it's a great idea to stop all of your clubs going broke and uh, (laughs) owing a lot of of money in unpaid tax, that sort of thing. Um, Yeah, look, the existence of salary caps in the uh, Australian sports has undoubtedly helped sports medicine and sports science get better funding because... If the amount you can pay your players in wages is limited, clubs that do have leftover money can then um, try and gain a competitive advantage by getting a better sports medicine and sports science team, and they have done that in Australia. Salary caps are great in theory, um, but your problem in football is because it is the world sport, if any one particular league decided to implement a salary cap Uh, without getting agreement from all the other nearby leagues you would have players then gravitating or osmosing to the league that was able to pay them unlimited money so i think everyone would like salary caps and the clubs themselves would love them but whether you can get them in um, is another matter but you can add it to the long list of benefits that they have
0: i probably should also ask you we've been very down on the epl um, but is there anything that the australian football league could learn from them are we doing anything right
2: yeah, I think that, um, I mean, the EPL is something that we look from afar with with a lot of jealousy of what a fantastic competition it is. So the fact that they do have money and resources, I think that the, the, the potential of the EPL to lead the world in sports science and sports medicine is undoubtedly there. And I would be surprised if it didn't happen within my lifetime.
0: Great. I wasn't expecting you to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and Peter, you've got a wealth of experience, not just in the, the medical side of things, but also in the, the, the media side. You're, you're a commentator for Sky Sports and you've written for, for some of the nationals over here. You had a really interesting point that um, in Australia, the media are a lot more interested in sports medicine and injuries. And you think it would help us over here if, if we were too. Could you expand on that a bit?
3: Yeah, certainly in Australia and also in the US too. There's a lot more discussion of uh, of injuries in uh, in the media. Um, if there's a, a major injury, then uh, then they'll usually get uh, a physician or someone to comment on on and explain the injury and uh, describe what what the injury involves, what treatment involves, how long they might be out for, what are the implications of this injury. It seems to be very well received by the public, and I think in both those both Australia and the States, the sporting public is much more. Uh, educated, if you like, uh, about injury, and uh, you know, if you mention that someone's torn their cruciate, well, they'll know, you know, what uh, that it's the major ligament of the knee, that it's uh, going to require major surgery, that the player's going to be out for, you know, sort of more than six months, and so on whereas uh, in this country there's not nearly as much discussion in in the media about about injuries you know clubs will sort of just announce that uh, that a player has you know, got a knee injury and they're out for 6 months and then that's really the end of it so I, I think there's a real opportunity here and and sort of the public find it very interesting there is a bit of a culture of secrecy and uh, particularly in the premier league but uh, you know you're not giving away any great secrets um, certainly, clubs are fairly strict on what they'll allow their uh, their team medical staff to talk about, but uh, it doesn't have to be the team medical staff that talks about it. It can be you know someone independent who's explaining the injuries to to the public, and uh, that's what uh, I got involved in Australia, writing for uh, national newspapers and, and and speaking on radio and television, uh, often with the use of diagrams or uh, or models or anything like that. And uh, it just struck me when I arrived here that uh, the average sporting fan here knew far less about injuries and and performance and and uh, drugs and uh, you know heat and altitude and all the sort of things that are are written about quite a lot in uh, in Australia and certainly even training uh, some of the science you know behind elite sport is is much more of a mystery here than it is at home
0: and what about uh, training programs for, for sports physicians do you think there's anything is Australia doing this particularly well is there anything we should learn from them
3: well, I think the Australian Sports uh, Physician Training Programme is, is excellent. I mean, it's been in existence now for, uh, for nearly 20 years. It's developed to the point where uh, the sports physicians have now been recognised by, uh, by the Australian government, the Australian medical community, as a, as a recognised new specialty, which is a pretty rare event to, to happen. I think it's a very good uh, programme. I mean, I... I Reluctant to say it's the best, but uh, um, it's certainly uh, up there. And uh, the English have sort of followed suit to to a certain extent uh, when they took the, they very cleverly took the opportunity of uh, being awarded the London Olympics to uh, to ensure that uh, that sports medicine got uh, specialty status recognition here. The the training program it probably lags a little bit behind the Australian uh, program just as a matter of time, but also. Uh, There's there's more sports medicine done in in the sort of private system, if you like, in Australia than than there is in this country. And uh, uh, there's limited sports medicine in the NHS. So there are limited opportunities for sports physicians to actually... Uh, gain gain experience uh, in the program but certainly there are other countries uh, in Europe in particular the Scandinavian countries uh, and Holland, Germany, uh, Belgium that have uh, similar very good postgraduate sort of sports physician training programs Interestingly, it doesn't really exist in the U.S. The sports physician as we know it, it's a specialist, uh, full-time sports medicine, you know, non-orthopedic uh, specialist, doesn't really exist in, uh, in the U.S. It's, uh, sports medicine is really a branch of, of both orthopedic surgery and, and general practice. So uh, I think in many ways uh, the, the Australian, British and, and some of the European systems are well ahead of the, uh, the American system of training sports physicians.
0: And aside from the the training, I mean, we've talked a lot about Australia and the UK today, but are there any areas across sports medicine that, that other countries are doing well, any headline messages that we should take away from them?
3: Oh, I think, yes. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, we we tend to be a little bit introspective, don't we? But, uh, I mean, the Scandinavians, for instance, are doing uh, excellent work, the Norwegians in particular, on uh, their research uh, program uh, through uh, Dr. Roel Barr and and his colleagues in in Oslo. uh, probably leads the world in in research into preventive uh, preventive medicine issues and uh, preventing sports injuries and so on. Similarly, throughout Europe, there are some uh, high-quality sports medicine uh, be performed in, uh, as I said, in, in the Netherlands, in uh, in Germany, in Spain. South Africa has a very good uh, sports medicine program, has some eminent sports scientists and sports physicians. Even our little brothers in New Zealand have a very good program. They have an excellent uh, accident compensation program there that uh, that really encourages good sports medicine and uh, and good sports physicians and so on so i think there's been huge progress in the profession if you like in the last 20 years i mean uh, really sports medicine as a full-time occupation for doctors didn't really exist uh, you know 20 or 30 years ago and it's come a long way in in that time and it's uh and it's progressing at a, at a rapid rate and uh, i think more and more countries now are realizing that sports and exercise medicine as an important component of, uh, of general health and uh, I think there's more and more awareness of the importance of exercise, our profession really are the experts in exercise and, uh, and, and therefore we can play a very valuable role not just in looking after sporting injuries but in uh, the role of exercise as part of uh, treatment for, for various conditions. I think the future of, uh, of sports and exercise medicine is, is very exciting.
0: Sure. Well, that's a great optimistic note to end on. Um, so, Scott, Peter and John, thanks very much for your uh, your insights this afternoon. Our pleasure. Thanks, thanks for on. having me.
1: For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.